So it's important to recognize that what you feel shame around is not natural per se, is not even objective per se. It's extremely specific to a form of culture and values that you were raised in that you may no longer agree with. Welcome to Normalizing Non-Monogamy, the podcast where we interview incredible people from across the entire spectrum of non-monogamy to hear their fascinating stories. We strive to bring guests on the show who have a healthy approach to non-monogamy. However, it's important to remember that everyone does it a little bit differently, and the views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect our own. Additionally, we produce this show for entertainment purposes only. Please be aware that we aren't doctors or therapists. Consult the medical professional for anything regarding your health that you might learn about on the show. Enjoy. Welcome to episode six of Focus Fridays. We're Finn and Emma, and if you're new to our show and this is your first time tuning in, we typically do our interviews of people exploring non-monogamy. And this is not that type of show today. This is a topic-specific show. And if you're looking for the other nine topics, well, I'm sorry, four of them haven't been released yet. (laughs) But the other five you can find by scrolling back up in your podcast player. Uh, Alternatively, you can go to our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com, and you can download all 10 of them at once right now, right here today. Special offer. It's actually not that special. It's it's available every day. And you can go to the courses tab, normalizingnonmonogamy.com, under the courses tab, and you will see a link there that will allow you to download all 10 at once for free if you would like, or if you feel like making a contribution to support the show and to support the contributors to this, we would greatly appreciate it. And thank you very much. With that, who are we talking to today? Today, we are having a conversation with AJ. He is the host of the Discomfortable Podcast, which is a podcast about shame, and he's becoming in the process of becoming a shame educator. We met him in June of 2019 at the World Domination Summit, and we're super excited to make this connection and get this episode out there. So without further ado, let's go talk to AJ about shame. Welcome, AJ. We're so excited to have you on today. Uh, we're I met you, actually, when we were at a conference, um, the World Domination Summit, which I just have to plug because it's a really cool conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're excited to bring you on and have a discussion around shame. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, but for anybody who who doesn't know you as well as we do, or as well as Emma does... Um, <laughs> We met, we met briefly out in, in Portland, but do you mind giving people a little background on, on some of the projects you're working on and how you came into the, the shame, uh, <laughs> the shame <sort> of, world, <laughs> the shamed community? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, well, my background is actually in filmmaking and writing. I am a Canadian and I've made some quirky short films and a feature as well. But I had this kind of breakthrough in therapy a few years ago where I realized that kind of my main issue and motivator in life was shame. And I should mention that I'm gay, and I think that played into it. It took me a really long time to come to terms with my sexuality. And so shame is just something that's kind of followed me around my whole life. And I think it was one of the big motivators in me feeling like I had to have a really impressive career as like a famous filmmaker. And when I had this breakthrough around shame in therapy, I just started researching shame for my own mental health. And mm-hmm. I just became obsessed with it. I, you know, I became obsessed with Brene Brown and there's a bunch of other really interesting shame thinkers who aren't as famous as Brene. And it improved my life so dramatically. I had what I call a shame breakthrough and it just like this, this weight of shame lifted off my shoulders. And it wasn't that I felt less shame. It was just that I understood it in this new way in which it didn't control me anymore. And it was so empowering that over the last few years of trying to figure out like, well, if I don't want to be a famous filmmaker, what do I want to be? The one obsession that has just kept coming back is shame. So I'm kind of in the process of learning to become what I call a shame educator, which is 
sort of like a sex educator, except instead of sex, I talk about shame. And I, I kind of just want to be a journeyman who goes around and educates as many people as I possibly can about shame in the hopes that it can help the people who are a little bit burdened by it, like I am, have that same kind of relief. So I am currently studying at the Center for Healing Shame in Berkeley, and next year I will be certified by them. And in the meantime, I've been taking every shame course, every workshop, reading every shame book I can possibly find, <laughs> and kind of integrating that with my own life experience to come up with what I think are the important top-level points about shame to help people start on their own journey. So that's really where I'm at right now. Awesome. And you have a podcast uh, as well for people that can can check that out. And that's called Discomfortable, right? Yeah. yeah. So I've got a podcast on all the major sites called Discomfortable. You can also go to discomfortable.net because I've also started to do videos. There's a Discomfortable YouTube channel. Uh, my most recent videos are an exploration of shame in the classic teen comedy Mean Girls, which is kind of a film that I've always really enjoyed and is a perfect <laughs> example of how shame works. Uh -huh. So I'm going to be doing more videos referencing pop culture, but I also have the podcast, which is about a year old now. So there's 60 plus episodes exploring shame and pretty much every topic you can imagine. Very cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess to start off, we were hoping you could talk a little bit about what shame looks like and how it manifests itself, because I think a lot of people out there have shame, but may not realize it. Kind of like you did, it sounds like before you had a shame breakthrough. Yeah, one of the great places to start with what is shame is to create the distinction between shame and guilt. And the, the distinction that really resonates in the psychology community is that shame is the feeling that you are a bad person, that you're, you know, deep down, your essence is flawed. Whereas guilt is more about actions. Guilt is, oh, I, I specifically am guilty of doing this one bad thing. And th there's another kind of angle to the difference between shame and guilt, which is that shame is usually based on a feeling of judgment from the outside world. The opinions of the world is that I am bad, whereas guilt is usually more based on your own values. Like, oh, you know what? Based on my own sense of right and wrong, what I did in this specific instance was bad. And when you can see the difference between those two, you can start to see that guilt is a much more proactive and healthy way to look at our mistakes because it, it, it centers them on one moment in time and it doesn't kind of eclipse your whole life. But when you get caught in the headspace of because, you know, usually it's based on an incident, because I did this thing or because I experienced this thing or because I innately am a thing such as, you know, gay or trans or any number of different identities could spark this feeling that I am just deeply flawed, I'm wrong, I'm bad. And there's very little you can do with that feeling because it doesn't leave room for change. So it's, it's quite maladaptive. And the way I look at shame kind of from an evolutionary sense is that shame was a negative reinforcer towards socialized towards like uh, conformity with the group. Because when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, we lived in groups of about 50 to 150 people. And if we got kicked out of that group, we were absolutely going to die. We couldn't survive. So I think the social norms of that group were reinforced positively through feelings like love and connection and belonging. It feels so good to fit into the group. But if that wasn't working, there was the negative reinforcement of shame, which was, which was most effective to stop you from even making a mistake. You knew that if you crossed the lines of what your culture said was right and wrong, you would feel this awful feeling of shame. And it was equated literally with death because if you broke these rules, you might be rejected and die. So shame is built in to kind of keep us within the group and to keep us alive. The problem is, of course, we live in a very different world now. We don't live with 150 people. We live in a global village in which we are being shamed all the time from strangers and from different cultures all being mushed together and different value systems. And so I think we are now exposed to our natural instinctual feeling of shame 
on a level that we have never had to deal with before. And it can be very challenging for people when they don't understand what shame is to parse out the difference between, okay, this is an instinct that has its purpose and believing the instinct when it says that you are bad. And that's really the kind of big message for me is to make it clear that when you feel shame, you don't have to believe it. You can't avoid feeling it. You know, it's an instinct, but you can separate the feeling of shame and the messages that has been attached to it through culture and see that they're not necessarily true. Right. And, and I guess what are some of the ways that like it manifests itself? Some of maybe the physical effects that it can have on people or that it, that it had on you, like that you, once you've started dealing with it, that you've seen have just sort of gone by the wayside and, and have lifted off of you. Well, the the physical feeling of shame, in my experience, is usually in my gut, but everybody's reactions are a little bit different. And one thing I want to make very clear is that getting comfortable with the discomfort of the physical feeling of shame is really important because most people come to me saying, AJ, I want to feel less shame. And what I want to point out is that that's what shame wants you to do as well. Because it's a negative reinforcement, shame is kind of like physical pain. You know, when you stub your toe, that's your body's way of saying, hey, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. And shame is the social version of that. So when you feel shame, it's your brain and your body's way of saying, hey, whatever you just did, don't ever do that again. So shame also wants you to feel shame as little as possible. So if your goal is to not feel that horrible physical feeling, that means that you are helping shame do its job and you are still controlled by shame. So one of the most powerful ways to deal with it is to normalize that discomfort. And we're able to do this with physical pain. You know, we go to the gym and it hurts, but we know we're choosing that that pain is okay. And so I kind of want to look at shame in a similar way. Every time we try to avoid feeling shame, what often happens is that we go into our threat response. And, you know, this just goes to show how connected to death shame is. It's like the social death. Because if you are in a situation where something really threatening happens, you're being attacked or you're, you're, you know, you have a near-death experience, our brain is designed to have these really basic threat reactions like fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to lizards. Like every animal down to lizards has the exact same threat response. We literally have an ancient part of our brain called the amygdala and the limbic system, and they're in charge of this. But what's interesting is you can be in a situation where you are not threatened physically, and that part of your brain is still activated. And that's because shame is so closely linked with death. Social rejection is linked to death such that often, instead of feeling shame in your gut, you will immediately transfer it to your limbic system. And then you are in fight or flight. And and some people will call this being emotionally hooked or being triggered. And again, it can feel different for different people. But the kind of basic feeling is your heart starts pounding, your face gets flushed, your throat gets dry, and it feels like you're going to start crying, which, which isn't actually tears. This is like part of your threat response to activate your body, get you ready for quick action. And the downside of your threat response is that it actually shuts down your prefrontal cortex, which is the most evolved, most recent part of the human brain. It's where logic and compassion and our values are all stored. So -hmm. the problem is we don't want to feel the horrible guttural feeling of shame in our gut. So we switch over to our threat response as a kind of defense mechanism, but then we lose our, our logical brain. So the reactions that we have to shame are almost always outside of our value system, outside of our integrity. And there's a kind of classic pattern to our reactions. There's the fight response, which is like attack, which means literally you might become violent because of something that you experience as shaming. But probably the most common version of our attack response is what I call the shame back. We take the shame that we perceived this person or situation as having made us felt, and we push it right back on them. We want them to feel that exact same pain. Another reaction is flight, which is you know, usually literal, we just want to leave, we just stand up and waltz out or slam the door or something like that. But it can also be a more kind of um, 
like a, a move away from authenticity. And that's where you get into something like people pleasing, which is another common reaction to shame. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so stupid. It's all my fault. Like, don't even listen to me. I, I, I'm the worst. And that's not authentic either. That's us kind of, you know, it's the human version of an animal showing its soft underbelly and saying, look, I, I'm subservient to you. I am, I am your, your slave now. And then there's other reactions, and I think this is really common, is just denial, where we just pretend like, I'm not feeling shame, I'm feeling fine, everything's okay, <laughs> let's not talk about this anymore. Or there's even rebellion, which is a kind of form of denial where instead of being controlled by shame, where you do everything in order to avoid feeling shame, it's kind of the opposite. When you feel shame, you attack it and you do whatever it is that makes you feel shame. So you're just as controlled by shame, but in an inverse way. If I feel shame about um, using curse words, then I'm gonna use more curse words to try to prove to myself that I'm not controlled by shame. So there's all of these really interesting reactions. And one of the best ways to start to kind of understand when you're in shame is to get a sense of what your body feels like when you get emotionally triggered. Some people feel it as they become really warm or they become really cold or they have like a tingling in the back of their neck. But if you have, you know, that pounding heart rate and that flushed face and the like watery eyes and there's no physical threat to be seen, that's a really good indication that you're experiencing shame but instead of feeling it directly, you have transferred it to your threat response. So these somatic experiences are really important in understanding when you're in shame and in getting over that shame. Yeah, well, that's, that's fascinating. And I think it maybe beg, you know, brings up the question then, like, what are, what are some of the healthy ways to confront it? Because it, when you were early on talking there, one of the things that I, you said was, the, the best things to do is start to get comfortable with the discomfort. Right. And that I can almost see that as the, the fight response, which is like just sit in that discomfort. And, but I guess that's easier said than done, right? Like how, how are, how are, what are some of the ways that you have found that allow you like some strategies to, to sit with that discomfort and, and be comfortable with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, a big help for me has been mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness is a practice where you basically pay attention really closely to what you're feeling. You know, meditation is just a, a really great way to get in touch with your body and your thoughts and your feelings and really see what is coming up. And the practice of mindfulness is not to judge or reject any of those feelings, but literally just to feel them, to explore them, to get curious about them. That's a word that Brene Brown uses a lot, curiosity. So it's a practice of when we feel a feeling that is designed to make us react to not feel it, instead to have the self-awareness to say, I'm not going to react to this. You know, like one of the biggest strategies is literally just to do nothing if you can, to just be like, oh, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I just, I'm going to sit in this. I'm going to get curious about it. I'm going to just feel it. We don't always have the opportunity to do that, you know, if we get shamed at work. And in these cases, it can be useful to lean into your flight reflex. You can say, I'm going to withdraw from this situation in a, you know, respectful way and just take some time in the washroom or go for a walk and just take that opportunity to use my, my withdrawal response to get comfortable with the feeling again. The danger with our withdrawal response is that usually what happens to me is that when I withdraw from a shaming situation, I actually just go into rumination, which means I'm going for a walk, but in my head, I'm auditioning different fight responses. I'm like, oh, well, I could have said this, or I could have been like, fuck you, or I could have had some, you know, some kind of clever reaction, or I could have punched them. So you have to be really careful when you withdraw that you then use that space and time to get back into your prefrontal cortex, to get your brain online again. And you can, you can literally do this through different types of thinking. Like sometimes I will just count backwards from 100 by multiples of three. So like 100, 97, 94. And if you do that for a while, 
you're being logical and you're getting your prefrontal cortex online and you're stopping the rumination that's connected with your threat response. You know, when I'm not in my threat response, I don't wish ill on anyone. So if I find myself, you know, wishing someone would, you know, suffer or feel pain or be punished or wishing to be above them or better than them, I'm always like, okay, I'm probably kind of operating out of my threat response. And it's a good sign that I need to try to get more logical thinking happening. And once I have that logical thinking happening, I'm then in a place to react to a shaming situation from my integrity and from my values and not from a place of punishment or domination, which is really connected to survival and our, our you know, limbic system threat response. So it's really about having, creating space and using that space wisely. And it's, it's about noting when you're in your threat response so that you don't lean in any of those predictable reactions. If you find yourself wanting to shame them back or wanting to people please or going into kind of a denial about it, that's a really good sign that you don't want to, you don't want to lean into any of those directions because that means you're leaning into your threat response. So as you can see, it takes a lot of self-awareness and that self-awareness I think really comes from mindfulness and meditation. That can be a great place to build your self-awareness about what you're feeling in a, in an, in accepting non-judgmental way, but it's an ongoing practice. Yeah. And it, yeah, it takes practice. That's, that's the key, right? Like, absolutely. Good at it overnight. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think something to just to re maybe restate again is that that difference that you made early on between guilt and shame, which is the things that you're being potentially shamed over are things that, that you don't think are necessarily wrong. It's, it's exactly you're, you're doing something or you are, something that you think is right and that that somebody else or society as a whole has determined that's not the way we do it that mm-hmm. that's not what people like us do and that's that's what you're feeling it's not like oh i did a i did a wrong thing it's I'm, they I'm, often mix together shame and guilt. I almost always feel them at the same time. You know, yeah. I look at something, a mistake I made, and I'm like, actually, yeah, I think that's a mistake. But then there's also the shame angle where I'm like, because I made that mistake, I really let everyone down. They're all, they all hate me now. I'm, I'm a bad person. And it's really important to try to separate those two so that you can look on the guilt side and say, okay, I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to change and grow. Yeah. And then... The thing about shame that's really interesting, as you just pointed out, is that it's it's an instinct that's built into us, but the instinct of shame has no content. So we're born with this sponge called shame, and it looks out through our eyes at the world, and every time it experiences disrespect or rejection or scorn, you know, especially from our parents or from people close to us, it remembers those moments and it tucks them inside the sponge of shame. And then in the future, when you encounter situations like that, shame appears, this this feeling in your gut appears that's basically saying, don't do that. Don't even consider that. Don't even go down that road because you are in danger of being kicked out of the group. The problem is when you're an adult, you might not agree with the way that your parents or your culture shamed you. I certainly don't. I was shamed deeply around gayness. You know, like when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was it was really not a thing, you know, like everyone, every kid made fun of every other kid for being gay. And even my parents, I sometimes heard say disparaging things. So the sponge inside of me arbitrarily absorbed the message, don't be gay. But then when I decided it was okay to be gay, that conditioning remained. And, and, it, and you may not be able to get rid of that conditioning. That's why I think it's so important to be comfortable with the discomfort of feeling shame. So when I am holding hands with my partner and someone gives me a look that looks sort of judgmental, I'm still going to feel shame, the feeling in my gut, even though I am okay with being gay. And I have done a lot of work to feel that and say, okay, I, of course I'm going to feel this. It's, it's my natural instinct to someone looking at me negatively surrounding an issue of homosexuality, which was, you know, conditioned into me. But I'm going to separate that from the beliefs that pop up. Oh, well, I'm bad. I'm dirty. I'm wrong. I'm sinful. I'm going to 
create a separation so that the feeling is just that. It's just a feeling. And any of these beliefs that pop up, I'm going to use my integrity and my values to say I disagree. It's when you combine the gut feeling of shame and its messages and keep them in one ball that they kind of overpower you. You know, the, the messages feel so true because they're accompanied by this really unpleasant physical feeling. So it just feels almost like God's wishes, like, of course, this is bad. Uh, you know, like I looked at the the shame that came up around being gay as, as um, real. Like I assumed everybody felt shame about gayness because it was almost like natural, but that's not true at all. There's other cultures that don't have shame around homosexuality and those people's shame sponge has arbitrarily absorbed completely different values and messages. So it's important to recognize that what you feel shame around is not natural per se, is not even objective per se. It's extremely specific to a form of culture and values that you were raised in that you may no longer agree with. And someone else's culture, you know, they might feel shame about something that you think is ridiculous. They might feel shame about spitting, you know? So it's it's really understanding how arbitrary it is that you start to see that you can liberate yourself from it without being able to necessarily liberate yourself from ever feeling it. Do you find that admitting the guilt out loud helps decrease the shame? I find admitting the shame out loud helps decrease the shame. When I'm in a situation where shame comes up, I now, you know, when it's appropriate, say, oh, you know what? <laughs> shame just came up for me. And uh, I, like, unpack it with my friends a little bit. I'm like, you know what? You sent me that text, and I didn't know what you were saying, and I, I suddenly felt shame because I felt like you were mocking me or judging me. So um, I'd love to just get some clarity around, like, what did you mean when you said that? And almost more often than not, I'll discover that I misinterpreted what they were saying. Because another, you know, um, survival instinct we have is this negativity bias, where we look at the world and we see the worst possible explanation, because that's the safest way to live. You know, our, our whole brain and shame and apparatus is designed for survival, not for contentment or happiness. So when I get an ambiguous text, my negativity bias is like, oh, well, they're mocking me. Oh, they hate me. Oh, you know, I, I probably did something really stupid. Yeah. And it's important to be really just honest about that kind of stuff so that you can get clarity around what they did mean. And if it turns out that they were mocking me, by being honest about it, I'm in a place to decide for myself whether I agree with them. I might be like, okay, I see why you mocked me. What I did was kind of stupid. Yeah. Or I could be like, you know, I, I appreciate your point of view, but I disagree. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not regretting what I said or did. And I'm sorry that you, you know, mocked me for it, but I, I stand by it. It just allows you to have so much more control and integrity when you can name these things and when you can voice them. And when you talk about shame, it really does lose a bit of its power depending on how people react. One of the antidotes to shame is empathy. So if I talk about my shame to someone who I really trust and they say, oh my goodness, AJ, I totally know that feeling. Boom. The shame is gone. Because shame is this external feeling. It's interrelated to other people at all times. You don't, you never feel shame in a vacuum. If you're imagine, if you're feeling shame alone, it's because you're imagining other people's judgments, scorn, disrespect, rejection, opinions. It never happens in a vacuum. And so if you're around a group that instead empathizes, that says, hey, you're, that's totally normal, you're still belonging, then the shame evaporates. So Brene Brown says that shame is fueled by secrecy, silence, and judgment. So if you can bring it out in the open and have it see the light of day, especially if you can get some empathy, that's a really big way to get over it. But as you'll note, empathy also means that you need someone else to give you that empathy. And so I think when you can't get that, it's important to have self-empathy and self-compassion and self-love. It's your way of saying to yourself, you know, like, even if no one else 
agrees with me on this. I really do feel aligned with my values and my logic and my integrity here. And I am I know this is going to be tough, but I I am going to combat those natural feelings of shame by saying I love myself and I accept myself. And that can be very powerful because it doesn't hinge on anyone else's approval or opinions. Right. And I think that that makes a lot of sense and you can feel shame around so many different topics and feelings and, and issues in your life. But I guess bringing this around a little bit to talking specifically about non-monogamy, I think what you said, so that the three things that Brene Brown says, secrecy, silence, and what was the third one? Judgment. Judgment. Like that really hits home when it comes to non-monogamy because so many people have all of those three things around non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. being able to acknowledge that and sit with it and meditate on it and also be confident in your choices and moving forward can really help decrease the shame around it because you're you're acknowledging it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I would definitely, and anyone who is, you know, feeling shame about some aspect of either their identity or some behavior that they have chosen, I think it's really important to get uh, support from other people who have similar views. Like, that's where you're going to get your empathy from. You know, for example, if you are gay like me and you haven't come out to your family and you're not sure how they're going to react, I would really recommend that you find your tribe before you come out in an uncertain way because the shame of being rejected by your family is going to be so overpowering that you're going to need something to fall back on. And and maybe you'll be surprised by people's reactions when you, you know, come out of the closet, so to speak. But I feel like if you can build up a tribe either online or in person of people who are like-minded, that can just be a really great source of empathy and support that can help you deal with your own shame in a a safe environment before you go out to the whole world or or to someone whose reaction is going to be really important to you, but you're not sure what that reaction is going to be. So we can't always control how our family is going to react to something like non-monogamy or homosexuality or all kinds of different identities. Right. But we can absolutely find our tribe, and that's so important. Right. But I'm, I guess one thing I'm curious about, and I mean, I completely agree with that, but something that I would think that you might agree with here, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about, is that just having that tribe is not enough right, to alleviate sort of those feelings of shame, right? Because like you, or let's specifically in the non-monogamy community, right? A lot of us hang out with tons of other people who are swingers or poly, but we still feel shame from outside Mm -hmm. of that community, Mm -hmm. much like, you know, for, for you being gay, right? You had probably lots of friends who were gay and you went, maybe went to gay bars, but there was still like the outside community, like it, it, it wouldn't be fair for us, right. To say like, Oh, well you have gay friends. Why do you, you don't need the rest of the world to Mm -hmm. think it's Mm -hmm. okay. And I think that's something that people struggle with is like, okay, well we have this community, but outside of this community, that's where the shame is coming from. Like I can't talk about it with people at work because I might get fired or I can't talk about it with my kids or my, my parents because they're not going to understand it. And I think that sort of just realizing that yeah, the community is amazing, but the shame comes from outside that community. Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember and reiterate that if your goal is to feel no shame, you are actually working with shame. It's, it's just not possible to not feel shame. The only people who don't feel shame are sociopaths or psychopaths, and they also don't feel empathy. Yeah. So, you know, to me, shame and empathy are so combined and wound up that they're like two sides of one coin. So trying not to feel shame is, is not the goal here. And what I'll say is that, like, we're, we're a social animal. And so we have been designed by evolution to be rewarded when we connect or feel belonging or acceptance or validation from other people. So in a perfect world, everyone in the world, especially the people closest to us, our family, you know, our our friends, would completely accept and connect with every and validate every part of us. 
but that's not always possible. So when I talk about having a tribe, it's a good way to bolster when you have a situation where your family may or may not accept you. You know, there are there are some people who will be rejected by their families for being LGBTQ+. And in those cases, you can create a chosen family, which which, to be fully honest, will never have quite the same power as your original family. But it's a great and necessary backup to have. Of course. So, so when I look at coming out to my actual family or to the world, to me, that's more a process of knowing that if they don't accept me, I will feel shame. But what's so important is that I don't allow that shame to control me or to convince me that I don't have any value. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about separating the feeling, just the physical feeling of shame from those cultural messages that got intertwined with it when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm able to do that now using mindfulness. So if I were to come out to my family and they didn't accept some part of me, I would be like absolutely prepared to just sit in that unpleasant feeling of shame, but making sure that I don't believe any of the messages that come up. So I'm like, this is going to, this is going to hurt, but it's like going to the gym. It's, it's worth it to, to just feel that pain of shame and to normalize it and get comfortable with it and say in the face of it, I, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That doesn't mean that I'm flawed or wrong. That doesn't mean I should change. That doesn't mean I should get angry. None of those things are reactions or beliefs that I'm going to buy into. And the truth is that when you just sit in an emotion, it actually doesn't last that long. This is another thing that you discover when you practice mindfulness and meditation. It's all of the work and energy we put into avoiding certain unpleasant emotions that prolongs them. You know, when, when something stimulates shame in me, it lasts like 90 seconds or, you know, maybe a bit longer. And the reason it seems to last forever is because I ruminate. I keep opening that psychic shame wound by thinking over and over in my head, I should have said this, I could have done that, or they have no right to believe this. They had no right to treat me that way. All of those thoughts aren't really useful, and they're actually extending the unpleasantness of shame. Whereas when I actually experience shame in the moment and just stop, usually I'll put a hand on my chest because that's sort of like a self-hug, and I'll just literally just sit there and feel it as much, like I, I lean into it. I feel it, and I just feel everything it has to offer me, and within like a minute or two, the shame as an emotion is like, thank you, you've heard me, I'm moving on now. And then on the other side of it, my prefrontal cortex comes back online because I did not lean into my threat response. And I am then able to be really empowered and, and decide how I want to react. So it's actually by embracing the discomfort of shame, by leaning into it without ruminating, that you can get through it to the other side much more quickly. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And very well said. It's like you teach on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and this is true for all uncomfortable, like anger or sadness. If you're not ruminating and reopening that kind of like whatever is stimulating that emotion, it passes very quickly. It's, yeah. it's actually really surprising. That can be applied to jealousy, too. Yeah, you're, you're telling yourself a story that yes. the other person or the other people are, they're doing this to you or they did this intentionally and you, mm -hmm. you, you create a narrative. Shame Internally. wants us to reject yeah. shame. And yeah. so we do that, but that elongates shame and keeps us under shame's control. What shame doesn't want us to do is to just embrace it and say, thanks, buddy. But, but I have to reiterate that when you embrace shame and love it and accept it, that you are not listening to its messages. It's like shame. I, I think of shame as a pathological liar, but it's a pathological liar who loves you and is trying to help you. And so I, you know, I love that pathological liar back, but I don't listen to anything that pathological liar tells me. I just, I'm like, I'm not going to listen to what the words that are coming out of you, but I'm going to feel you and your presence until you're ready to go. Yeah. It's like the acknowledgement. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Acknowledging it. Uh, and, and getting curious about it and confronting it. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in rumination, 
you can usually tell because you'll usually also be in your threat response. You know, your heart will be pounding. Your your brain will be moving a mile a minute. And another sign of rumination is when you're answering questions that aren't yours to answer. You know, I call it the cynical psychic. It's when rumination pairs with your negativity bias such that you're like assuming that you know what they were thinking or you know that they were upset at you. You know, you're deciding, oh, obviously this person hates me and this person was probably trying to do this to me and they were probably trying to control me. Anytime you're, you know, in that mode where you're thinking you can answer what someone else is trying to do to you, you're probably ruminating and you're probably making it worse. I would say if it's a really close relationship that's important to you, that you as quickly as possible go up and get clarity. You'd say something like, you know, this is the story I'm telling myself. And this comes from Brene Brown. This is the story I'm telling myself. Um, Is there any truth to that? And almost always they will clarify like, no, 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 you're, you're misinterpreting it. Your negativity bias has had a field day with this situation. Mm-hmm. But if you can't, if you can't, you know, if, if I'm on the street and someone bumps my shoulder, you know, it's the smallest thing, but I will feel shame. And instead of saying, I shouldn't feel shame about this, it was just a stranger who bumped my shoulder. I say, no, of course I'm going to feel shame. And I pause and I feel it. And then on the other side of it, I'm free to just go on with my day and forget about it and never think about it again. Because to think about it again, given that that person isn't there to talk about it with, did you mean to bump my shoulder? Did you do it on purpose? Were you trying to intimidate me? None of those questions can be answered. So thinking about it again is rumination and it is going to extend the problem. Sounds like a big piece of this is, yeah, like you said, take it, accept it, and then move on because there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of times there's just nothing you can do about it. And exactly. like you said, you're just going to sit in it and make mm-hmm. yourself crazy. There's the moving on where we say, I shouldn't feel shame about this because it's nothing. I don't know what their intention is. And that will extend it. And then there's the moving on where you say, of course, I'm going to feel shame about this. I accept that shame and I'm now going to move on. That's right. the, right. that's the one that's the most useful. Right. Yeah. Because you're actually able to move on in that instance where the other one you're not. Yeah, you're not letting shame tell you its message, which is really important to shame because it thinks it's going to help you survive. You know, think back to when you were a hunter-gatherer or, you know, your ancestors. If someone bumped your shoulder, it was someone you knew. It was one of the 150. It was someone that was your kin or your relative. So it really was important that you figure out, oh, no, is this person upset at me? But now we live in this modern world where a stranger can trigger that same reaction when it really isn't important. On the internet, a stranger can trigger a a reaction that was designed to be for our kin. And that's really important to remember because then then you are like, of course this feels really intense, even though intellectually I know it's nothing. Of course it feels intense. That's okay. Right. Well, because your defenses go up, right? That's if somebody says something on the internet that's a stranger and whoever, whatever their intention is, you can interpret it how you interpret it and feel a lot of shame around that or frustration or anger or, but like you said, that you have to separate that mm-hmm. from, from being, you know, a stranger versus what it, yeah, like your kin originally, right? Like your yeah. The ancestors. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything, I mean, thank you again. I mean, we've talked about, I think, some amazing strategies and ways to disarm shame and to sit with it. And I think we've learned a lot. And is there anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to to make sure people took away from this uh, conversation? Well, uh, there's a couple other strategies that I can kind of just throw out here. Um, Sure. You know, we talked about how shame is is an externally referenced emotion and how empathy is also externally referenced. And it's really powerful. And that's, you know, that's where your tribe comes in handy, though, as, as I said, they're, they're not going to get rid of your shame, but they're a great support system. But there's other internally referenced things you can do with shame. And, you know, a classic one from the LGBTQ plus community is converting shame to pride. And, you know, like non-monogamy might be a great example where you start off by feeling like, oh, I'm really, I don't want to tell my family. I'm really ashamed of being different than them. They might judge me. But then there's the other angle, which I've heard you talk about, where you're like, but hey, we've done non-monogamy for 13 years and it's worked really well for us. 
like, wow, we should actually be really proud of this thing. So there's, you know, there's always a way that you can kind of convert it and find the pride side and, and really own that. Um, I like that one, by the way. <laughs> it's a really good way to think about it. Anytime you, you know, ex- make a mistake and then overcome it, that's a great source of pride. Like the, the mistake itself is where we focus the shame. But then it's like, no, look at, look at what I learned from that. Look at how I've grown now. Look at how I would uh, know to do it differently in the future. And that can be a big source of pride, which is great. Whereas if you let shame make you think that you need to hide a mistake, then you're not going to learn anything from it. So again, it's about bringing these things into the open. If, you know, if not telling everyone, at least being open with yourself about it. Oh, I'm feeling shame. I, I really want to get curious about this. I want to I look into it. And, you know, sex and non-monogamy, sex has got to be one of the biggest sources of shame in every culture of the world. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful force. And I feel like I am still coming to terms with the shame that I kind of absorbed as a child around sex. You know, in my mind, sex was just as bad as illegal drugs. That's like really how powerful it was to me. Yeah. And so I think we have to have a lot of self-compassion for ourselves around how scary and uncomfortable it is to be open about this stuff and to just recognize that we're up against a cultural force that goes back for centuries. And it's it's something that we can actually be proud of, that we have even had the strength to overcome it even just secretly, you know, in a in a non-monogamous relationship that we don't want to talk about. That's a really big step. You you have you yourself have liberated a bit of yourself from the power of culture. And so I, I would always try to focus on the pride side of of how you have um liberated yourself or grown or learned or overcome even you survived even something really difficult yeah which i think is is super difficult to do sometimes right especially if you're dealing with something that society thinks is is wrong and that if you make a mistake like you were supposed to like you you should have failed because you weren't even supposed to be trying that right. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if if you if you're in a polyamorous relationship and it and you break up, well, obviously you aren't supposed to be doing it that way, right? But but if you're if you're in a if you're in a monogamous marriage and the marriage fails, it wasn't monogamy's fault, mm-hmm, it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 those cultural norms around it, right? It's oh mm-hmm. well, of course your polyamorous triad failed. That's yeah. not what we do. And that's where getting curious is so important because if you can, you know, shame operates unconsciously. And what I want to do is take all of those unconscious shame rules, all the messages that my sponge absorbed, and bring them into my conscious brain. Because they're often not something I'm aware of at all. And when I realize it, I'm quite surprised. You know, usually it feels like something when someone challenges you on a shame conditioning, you almost always give the, the like, oh, well, of co- why, why should you be monogamous? Like, because, uh, duh, like, of course. But when you really challenge those beliefs, you'll find that there's not a lot of logic behind them because you didn't learn them through logic. You learned them through shame. So I am in the process of trying to get curious about you know, what it is about sex that is so bad and to try to bring all of that into my conscious brain so that I can then make a conscious decision. Do I agree with that piece of cultural conditioning or not? And sometimes I'll be like, yeah, actually, you know, I do agree with that one. That's a smart, that's a good lesson. But now I agree with it from a place of logic, not just from a gut reaction. And, you know, another big powerful tool is to convert shame into gratitude. You know, I had a lot of shame and I still deal with a lot of shame around homosexuality but I am so grateful for the challenge and for the, 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 the view of the world that being gay has given me. You know, it's, it's been a struggle and it was traumatic at a, as a child, but it made me more powerful now. It made me more self-aware and it gave me a view on the world that very few people have where I can see cultural norms. I can see them and be like, well, you know, that's not true because I'm gay. I'm completely different and I'm fine. 
So that's another thing that you can, you know, you can look at the shame of non-monogamy, but you can also be grateful for all of the insight that it has given you. Like, wow, it's been a challenge. It's been shamey at times, but it has taught me so much. And it has shown me a side of the world that a lot of people don't see. They don't know that that option even exists. So gratitude is like kind of a flip side to pride that can be a really powerful internal way to convert shame. Right. With anything in your life, right? Like anything that Absolutely. You, you feel that was difficult or is difficult or um, challenging in your life, flipping it and saying, well, you know, I'm so grateful that I was able to experience this in my life because I wouldn't be the same person without it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even a, even something traumatic at a certain right. point when you've when you've worked through it and and you've recovered from it, there's a moment I think where you say, you know what? Like I'm grateful that I experienced that. I'm not grateful that this person did this horrible thing to me, or you know, uh, I'm not grateful for the pain per se, but I'm grateful at my own resilience. Right. Well, and, and get back to the pride, the pride thing. You know, I'm proud of how I handled it or how I was able to move past it or w- deal with it in whatever way that looks like. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, in, in the queer community, being proud and having a pride parade is very much tied with bringing it out into the open, like a a parade. That's a perfect example of, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to share it, Uh, you know, because we are a social animal and being seen is what makes us feel the most amazing feelings that a human can feel. It's just because we're social. So, you know, I actually think that oftentimes shame says, hide yourself so that you can fit in. And that's a great strategy for surviving, but it doesn't lead to the most well-being. And now that we live in this modern world, we all have access to a tribe of people out there who will see us and empathize with us and accept us fully. And I want people to find that tribe and to lean into it because that is the way our evolutionary process has designed us to feel the most pleasant feelings. It's it's just as simple as that. It's like, how do I, you know, yes, you can fit in and survive, but you won't be as happy as if you can find as many places as possible where you can be your full authentic self, because that is where your brain is going to reward you with the most pleasant feelings of belonging and connection and validation and acceptance, simply because as a social animal, that's what helped us survive. Yeah. And one piece that we didn't talk about really, but has a huge impact on feeling shame is religion and how Mm -hmm. in our cultures, you know, in different cultures, they feel, people feel shame around different things. A lot of it tied back to what they're taught from a religious standpoint. And that's a whole nother ball game, but gets to the point too, that you can overcome that and you can um, acknowledge it. Yeah, religion is fascinating to me, and, and I will disclose that I am agnostic. You know, I'm not religious. Sometimes I have been quite atheistic, but really, if I had to be honest, I just don't know. Yeah. But but it, it changes shame when you believe that there's this, this God out there, because in my mind, what's really helped me deal with shame is knowing that... I have me and that my opinion is the most important opinion. And if I buy into shame's message that I'm bad, then uh, by all intents and purposes, I am bad and I'm going to feel it. But if I just say, no, I'm literally just going to decide that all people are equal. Therefore I am not bad. It, it works. Like I'm, if I'm able to believe that message that I tell myself, then I, I feel that it's true. And, you know, like our brain is subjective in the way that what we believe feels true. So even if I'm around a group and I feel like they accept me, I'm going to feel amazing, even if behind the curtain, they actually don't accept me. So I would be, you know, when you believe in a God, if you have any choice in the matter, I would highly recommend believing in a God who is all loving, you know, uh, uh, and, and there are religions that, that absolutely have that. There are branches of Christianity that absolutely have that. A God who accepts you wholly. And when you make a mistake, that God completely understands and says, yes, you made a mistake, you, but you're learning and that's okay. Because that would actually add this incredible sense of acceptance to your life, to know that there's a God who always has your back, who always loves you, who no matter what you do, no matter what you do, that God unconditionally loves and accepts you. Like, obviously, that God wants you to do the best that you can. 
if you if you truly believed that, that would be an extremely powerful counter shaming um, mindset. I, I don't have that, so I try to give that to myself. I try to say that all humans are equal. That's my my internal logic. Therefore, I am neither bad nor better than anyone else. And I use that internal logic to to always. Um, keep myself from buying into shame's message when it pops up that that I'm flawed or bad or disgusting or evil. You know, there's just like endless words that play into shame's message. But when I am able to tell myself, no, you know what? I've just decided I have value. I have worth. I am as good as anyone else. And if I can really believe that, it's really powerful. But if you buy into the religious message that God is judging you, that there's a mistake you could make for which God would abandon you, then you're in a very, it's like shame on steroids. And I just, I want people to recognize, just as you said with non-monogamy, that there is a choice. There are other religious beliefs that you could lean into, and you don't have to just accept the one that you were born into. You were arbitrarily born into a religion. And if you believe in the magic of God, if you believe that there's a larger story there, I would really encourage people to find the, the version of God, the version of that magic that is unconditionally accepting and loving, because that is going to really help. Yeah, I love that. That's very well said. Um, was there anything else that you'd want to add? I think that pretty much covers what I, you know, have off the top of my head. Of course, you can go into shame and every topic, shame and sex, shame and raising children, shame and this and shame and that. But, you know, that's, you you can listen to that in my podcast. I was going to say that. That's exactly (laughs) what your podcast does. And the strategies that we talked about here are are still valid strategies. These aren't just how to overcome the shame around being gay or being non-monogamous. It's right. their unilateral mm-hmm. strategy. And yeah, I would, you know, in terms of non-monogamy and in shame in general, my message is one of wanting to empower people to see and accept their own authority and their own ability to choose. Because I think shame tricks us into thinking we don't have choice. Shame makes it seem like, oh, I have to act this way or I will be bad. But actually, what is really happening is that you are choosing to act in this way because shame is pressuring you and it aligns with your culture. But you are still choosing. Every time you think you have to do something, I have to go to work, I have to do this, it is a choice, even if it's an unconscious choice. And what I want people to realize when they're coming out of shame is that they get to make those choices from a conscious place by empowering their own sense of authority. So instead of thinking, well, you know, I wish I could be non-monogamous, but I I have to do it a certain way, I want to say it's a choice. And when you make that choice consciously, you are in a much better position to be empowered and to find your own strength and your own self-resilience. And it's sort of like a house of, you know, like a domino effect where once you realize you have choice and you make that choice conscious in as many different domains in your life, it really raises you up and raises your own self-esteem up and your own sense of authority up because you're like, I can't, you know, just rely on culture to tell me how to act. I am choosing and I need to be responsible with how I choose. So right. it's it's kind of a paradigm shift when you realize that culture is not choosing, you are. And if you allow culture to choose for you unconsciously, you're not making the most wise, thought through, logical, um, value-based choices, but you are still choosing. Yeah. Right. No, I think... That's wonderfully said. And I really appreciate, or we really appreciate, you know, you coming on and sharing all of these thoughts around shame. And we're excited to point people in the direction of your podcast and your work. Um, because I think it's also very important and gives people another resource to continue diving into this topic. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's it's always helpful for me to sort of express it in a, a new way, in a new context with new people. And so I've uh, I've really learned a lot and I'm learning so much about non-monogamy from the podcast. It's been really eye-opening for me as well. So thank you. Awesome. Well, we appreciate that. Yeah. And, and uh, 
look forward to working together in the future. So thank you. Great. Thank you. And we're back again. Thank you to AJ for coming on the show and sharing a lot of his knowledge with us. Yeah. And again, we appreciate everything, AJ. And we're super excited. Hopefully we see you at the World Domination Summit this year. 2020. We're excited. The last one. All right. Next week, we've got an interview with Jack and Jill, former guests of the show from episode 97 and former Mennonites who, in their own right, have dealt with quite a bit of shame. And so we're going to actually talk to them a little bit more about shame and how they've dealt with it personally and are continuing to deal with it. Yep. And just a quick reminder, any resources that are mentioned in any of these episodes are available in our show notes and those can be found at normalizingnonmonogamy.com. And with that, let's uh, go and we will see you all next Friday. <laughs>